I like to imagine that it was a cool morning in Jerusalem when Jesus of Nazareth was brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He had been betrayed by one of those in his entourage, found guilty by his own religious leaders, but the ultimate decision on whether or not he could be executed fell with Rome. Now, of course, this is far more than just one moment in history. It's recorded for us because this is the king who is crucified on behalf of others, standing before a governor who represents the king he crucifies. It is the ragged, poor, and impoverished Jewish Messiah in the lavish palace of Israel's oppressor. It is one dressed in the garb of Greek philosophers and Latin lawmakers, standing before the one who definitively reveals God in history. And as we'll hear in a moment, it's the one who tosses up his hands and says, what is truth? Speaking to the one who just a few hours earlier said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And with all this background in mind, I echo the insight of biblical scholar Leon Morris. It is not Jesus who's on trial here. It's Pilate and the way of living that he represents. So if you've got your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 18. We're going to be going from verses 33 and following. This is Jesus before Pilate. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, replied Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no base for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. We haven't met yet. I'm Ricky, and I'm the pastor of Community Life here at Summit Drive Church. And I'm continuing our series, Thinking Christianly, on loving God with our minds today. And what we're going to examine is Pilate's question, what is truth? And then we're going to go on and we're going to look at how reliable our experience is when it comes to pursuing truth, when it comes to loving God with our minds. What is truth? Notice, this is the question that Pilate uses to essentially dismiss Jesus. It's the way he kicks him out of the room. He doesn't wait for a response. He's the example many theologians and scholars have used him as the example of what it live, means to live in like a post-truth society. You hear phrases, or, oh, those are just your facts, or that's just your truth. As one scholar has said, that the time we're living in now, there's a suspicion about overarching narratives. We're suspicious of any idea that there's a truth that applies universally. So how did we get here, you might ask? What got us to the place where the question, what is truth, is used to essentially dismiss people? Well, we don't need to get too deep into things, but to give you just kind of a brief, rough overview, 
what happened is we became materialists. We became the type of people who believe that the only things that are real, that are true, are those things that happen in the natural world and are verifiable by experimentation. But the problem is, is if you ask most of the people who perform these types of experiments, they'll tell you that things like love, compassion, honesty, and the common good, these things aren't in the realm of what's experimentally repeatable. In fact, Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, has come right out and said before that as much as we wish to believe otherwise, universal love and the welfare of the species as a whole are concepts which simply do not make evolutionary sense. So science doesn't prove love. It doesn't prove so many of the things that we rely on to share a life together. So those things become relegated to the realm of beliefs or values, not capital T truth. Now there's two brief consequences that kind of come out of this. The first is the equation of truth and power. This is Karl Marx's great and, and terrible contribution to thought. Essentially, in, in the vacuum where values cannot be proved, it's the powerful who can impose what is real on other people. And this is why everything's political nowadays. As soon as anything comes up, the first thing people do is, is try and get things moved into policy because they believe that there's no room to argue with each other over what's true because nobody has the same standard of what's true in the first place. So you have to get power, political power, in order to enforce what you believe is true. And this is essentially, I think, what is actually going on in our text. This is what Jesus and Pilate are actually talking about. Pontius Pilate stands in our scriptures as the only contact that Jesus Christ had with Rome directly. He's the one who represents that juggernaut of violence and oppression that had taken over the known world at that point. A, a, a clear example of kind of might makes right. And Pilate is obviously not at all concerned with Jesus' religious debates with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's got one question. Are you a king? Meaning, are you a threat? Are you going to raise an army? Are you going to try and fight back against Rome? And he writes, I think, really helpfully translates Jesus' response. My kingdom isn't the sort that grows in this world, replied Jesus. If my kingdom were from this world, my supporters would have fought to stop me being handed over to the Judeans. But it's not like that. My kingdom isn't the sort that comes from here. Usually translations of this passage make Jesus sound super spiritual. My kingdom's not in this world. But I think this gets closer to what he's trying to say. He's like, my kingdom doesn't work like your kingdom, Pilate. I do not force or enforce what I believe to be true. Now, many of us know that followers of Jesus all through the centuries have been guilty of doing very bad things, have been guilty of violence. And there's a suspicion within all our culture that any claim to objective truth, any claim to capital T truth automatically leads to violence, and that's one of the reasons we need to suppress it. But let's remember that the one who is standing before Pilate right now is the one whose kingdom does not grow like other kingdoms. He's the one who will ultimately hang on a cross for the very people who put him there. That's the truth that we serve. Might does not, in fact, make right. The second thing that happens when truth is kind of disappearing from uh, our narratives is that truth becomes about self-expression. It becomes individualized. And I'm kind of glad that we got the kids out of the room for when we talk about this part, because we, we got to talk about something that I don't think they're quite ready to understand. 
we have to discuss that philosophical figure who's been dominating the scene for the last nine years. And that figure is none other but Elsa of Arendelle. In her first collection, Frozen, told in the form of a narrative, right? Philosophy told in the form of a narrative, much like Friedrich Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra, she had a powerful existentialist treaty called Let It Go, where she told us that we need to shake off traditions and responsibilities and embrace the magic within ourselves, even if it isolates us from society and other people because the cold never bothered her anyways. In her second collection, Frozen 2, she embodies a story where Arendelle's in conflict with another people group in a forest. But the forest is shrouded in mist, mist that plainly is a symbol for the way we've been alienated from our internal magic. To dispel this mist, she needs to go find the fifth elemental spirit. So she hops on the back of her super hardcore water horse, crosses the seas of chaos, gets to an island, and lo and behold, she is the fifth spirit that she's been looking for. She literally sings, throw yourself into something new. You are the one you've been waiting for. I laughed out loud in the theater at this scene. I was like, you finally just came out and said it. You finally said it. The world, life, the meaning of life, the universe, and everything is just finding our own truth and expressing it in the world. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn observed, there are now as many centers of the universe as there are people. No wonder so many of us are so lonely. We've got to be a world unto ourselves. Create from scratch an, an identity and purpose and truth. And this is actually kind of part of Carl Jung, who's a famous psychiatrist. This is what he made. He built his psychology and his counseling practice around this, the idea of individuation, the idea of becoming the hero in your own myth. That if we pay attention to our senses, to our experience, we can create meaning for ourselves. And that leads us back to truth is power, because to do that, we have to fight the power structures that be to make space for us to express our inner magic. So where do we go from here? How do we answer Pilate's question? What is truth anyways? Now, you'll notice that Pilate's question in Greek is literally what is truth, not what is the truth. It's like he's so confused about the concept, he can't even begin to wrap his mind around the possibility that there might be an answer to the question. And just to speak really briefly, truth in most traditions is just correspondence to reality. Truth is just that which matches up with what is real. But again, Pilate's question and the dismissiveness of it seems to insinuate that like, it's an unanswerable question. We can't really know what's true. Not in any meaningful way. <laughs> There's actually this like famous story at the university I went to, Trinity Western, you know, this question of can we know truth can really like mess some people up. And there's this philosophy prof who was riding his motorcycle to Whistler. And as he's riding, he starts thinking about this stuff. And he starts thinking about, which I don't know if you've ever thought about it, like how our brains even know how to do automatic things. Like he's riding this motorcycle at like 120 kilometers an hour. And he's like, I don't know how I'm riding this. And he gets so freaked out, he pulls off the road steps off the thing and like backs away from it 
like it's a wild animal. <laughs> he apparently like phoned a friend and got him to like drive him off the highway. We can get pretty messed up by this question. So what's, what's the Christian response to this? What's the answer to can we know truth? Well, as far as scripture is concerned, it seems like the answer to can we know truth is got places like Proverbs where it says, out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. Wisdom is basically just applied truth in kind of the wisdom tradition of Hebrews. And basically this is saying, look, wisdom's out there. It's calling out to you. You should know it. And Jesus even holds people responsible often to their ability to know what's true. The scribes, the Pharisees, all the people he fights with, he says, this stuff is self-evident. You should have known this. At one point, his disciples actually ask him to explain one of his parables, and Jesus responds, are you still so dull? Like, you don't get this yet? And yet, we also have passages like 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where Paul writes, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now, a wooden translation of this passage would be, now I see through a mirror indirectly. That word that's translated indirectly or reflection is actually also the Greek word for riddle. It's almost as if Paul is saying, now I see, but like through a funhouse mirror. And we also have whole books like Ecclesiastes where the teacher says things like, I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned this too, is a chasing after the wind. All that seeking didn't matter, didn't help, didn't solve anything. So when it comes to the question, can we know truth? Like I said, the answer is, yeah. We can know enough, definitely enough to be held responsible for our actions. But when it comes to fully representing all that is real, that's just out of our depth. That's beyond our capacity for, as the type of beings that we are. So we can know enough truth, but let's talk about this problem of our shared life together in truth. One of the other places that you'll read about truth in the Bible is Ephesians 6.14, in the passage on the armor of God. And you'll know that in the armor of God, truth is represented as the belt, which I always get a little bit of a kick out of, because it's kind of saying, if you don't have the truth, it's like you're walking around with your pants down around you in the but, but push that metaphor further. Belts hold up by holding together. And as much as philosophers like that philosophy teacher and theologians and other people in big, heady spaces and ivory towers can say, oh, we don't really know the truth, when it comes down to it, 90% of the time in our shared life together, we assume that we can correspond with reality. We assume that we know some truth, or else our shared life together would completely fall apart. Elsa does not run our legal system. We don't swear in saying, I swear to tell my truth and my whole truth and nothing but my truth. We swear in saying, I will tell the truth. Of course, the court understands that you have a perspective, that you are limited. That's why there are checks and balances. That's why there's lawyers and judges, other witnesses, evidence. There are ways to verify the limited perspective we have on the truth with everybody else's to try and get to the truth. 
But because it comes from a perspective doesn't mean it's not there. Now this courtroom example I think is helpful because today we're not here just to talk about the truth and whether we can know it. All of this brings us to, to talking about our experience, our subjective individual experience of the world and how it correlates to truth. And it's much like we are witnesses in, in cases. We can bring the things that we know forward, but we need checks and balances. We need other things to, to test against. The data from our five senses is real and valuable and helpful, but it's not all that there is. We've been shaped to see from a certain perspective. We have biases and prejudices, things that we need to challenge. We need to have a way of questioning these things, and that's what we're talking about over these next few weeks is just the four resources that Christians have used to know things or to think about things. Scripture, tradition, reason, and as we'll talk about today, experience. So if you go looking for how the Bible talks about our experience, our senses, you'll see that actually our sense experience is held up as something that's, that's verifiable, that we do interact with reality. In fact, it's used to defend the gospel. You've got John's first epistle, which starts with the words, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched with our hands. Or Luke's gospel begins with the words, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us concerning Jesus and the gospel and so on. Just as they were handed down to us from the first who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And Thomas that famous example, he says, after the people have seen the risen Jesus, he says, I will not believe it unless I can put my finger on his scar. And Jesus doesn't dismiss him, doesn't tell him no way. He, he shows up and he says, have at her. Which I, I lived in boys' dorms for quite a while at Trinity Western, and let me tell you, I, this always felt a little bit like a guy coming back with a new scar and being like, touch it, touch it, but that's just me. Do you notice the emphasis, though, that's placed upon their experience? Yes, they knew Jesus was real because the, the scriptures had borne witness to him. Yes, they had a tradition that they were waiting for a Messiah. Yes, they could reason that this is the one that they were waiting for based on logical thinking. But fundamentally, one of the things that they used to defend the gospel, particularly to outsiders, is we saw him. We touched him. We heard him. And some argue, I think pretty convincingly, that Christianity laid the foundation for much of materialism and science because it placed such a huge emphasis upon the experience of our senses, the fact that our bodies actually do interact with reality. But this emphasis, I think, also does another thing. I think it challenges a lot of us. I think a lot of us actually live day to day as if we're just like a brain in a jar. We want to forget our bodies. We want to forget our feelings, our, our intuitions, our emotions. But there's not really room for that. We experience God through our bodies. God gave us bodies to be the, the thing that we experience reality through. And the scriptures are incredibly visceral. The Hebrews are not Greek philosophers. If you, if you read through the way emotions are described in the Old Testament, particularly in the original Hebrew, they're very physical. You don't get angry. Your nostrils flare. You don't 
feel agony, your bowels shake. And you don't praise God just with your like disembodied soul, because soul is a metaphor for your whole being. But soul in Hebrew is also the word for throat, because it's where you breathe out of, where you sing out of, where you express yourself out of in words. See, God designed our bodies to be the place that we experience reality and experience him. And when we neglect the cues from our bodies, our experience, and when we neglect our bodies by not taking care of them, we're actually damaging our ability to get close to the truth. But there's a problem. And part of the problem is, is that our bodies don't just experience reality, they interpret reality. If you are a philosophically minded person and you want to get really messed up, go read St. Augustine, he's a fourth century pastor, go read his book called The Confessions, book 10 on memory. It'll totally just mess with your brain. Because fundamentally what he says is, you never experience anything directly. The present moment is always going by quicker than you can catch it. Even now, you're not listening to my words. You're interacting with your memory of my words just a second ago. Everything is mitigated through memory. Everything, every experience is you reflecting on it after it's already happened. One really good example of this that I read recently is there's this guy who went on a hike. He was hiking along on a mountain trail that he knew super well, and he felt something like hit the back of his leg. But there's lots of sticks and brush about, and he's been on this trail a ton, so he's like, oh, probably just a stick. Do, 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 I'm fine. Keeps walking, gets super nauseous, almost passes out with pain, ends up going to the hospital. It turns out a poisonous snake had bit him on the heel. His body in that situation had not done him a favor. It had misinterpreted reality. Because this is a place that his body normally felt safe, it said, this is probably no big deal. But the really interesting thing is, is he goes back on that same trail a few years later, he's walking along again, and something hits the back of his leg, and he has, like, it's like searing, mind-numbing pain shoots through his entire body to the point where he basically passes out. And he looks behind, and this time it was a stick. It was just a little stick that had barely nicked the back of his leg. But his body, based on prior experience, before he could even think about it, interpreted the situation as dangerous. Gave his body a pain signal so that he would actually take it seriously this time. Right? Our bodies don't just experience reality, they interpret it faster than we can even think about it most of the time. So the thing to do with our emotions, our feelings, our intuitions, our pains, is not just to accept them as truth right away, but to interpret them, to get curious about them, to ask questions. What could this mean? What is this saying? Now, we've done a lot of deep thinking here, so let's, let's just do a couple really quick, straightforward examples of what this looks like in real life, of what it looks like to deal with our sense experience and use it to find truth. The first example is what I often point to as the moment that I fell in love with my wife. So Michelle, who's my wife, and I had been friends for a very long time. Um, and at this point, I think she had mentioned that she liked me, and I had said, no, it's a long story. You can ask her about it. She's way better at telling it. But we were at a volleyball game, a Trinity Western University volleyball game. And unfortunately, one of the problems with Trinity, Trinity's a Christian college, but they had a horrible reputation. Their fans were just brutal to other teams, like just awful. And at this particular game, the soccer team was there, and they were cheering for the volleyball team, and they had, like, done research on the other team. Like, 
stuff about like their families and stuff. So they'd be chanting, I think they chanted about some guy's dad leaving the family or something like that to the other team. Like just awful stuff. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see Michelle vibrating with rage. Like just, she's a redhead too, right? And she's just like, her, her body is the color of her hair. And eventually she gets up. She's like five foot four. And these guys are the soccer team. One of them's got a shirt off. They're called the Spartans. They look like Spartans. And she gets up in his face and she just dresses him down. Like, how dare you do this? You're a representative of Jesus in our school. You should never act like this. And let me tell you, those guys did not look so tough in that moment. Right? They look like 10-year-olds who have been caught with their hands in the cookie jar. They all kind of shrunk. And I was like, okay, this girl's got something. Come on. Now, I don't think she sat there and, like, ran her experience through scripture, tradition, and reason at this moment. She's somebody who's been raised as a Christian and sanctified, worked through with the Holy Spirit enough to the point where she intuitively knows some things about what God cares about. And in this case, her emotions, her feelings, her intuition led her to truth. And these guys verified it. They knew they should not have been acting the way that they did. So maybe there's something that's bothering you. Maybe somebody said something said something that, that has just bugged you or made you angry. Well, if we, if we go to Scripture, we hear from Jesus that if something bothers us, we're supposed to talk to somebody about it, Matthew 18. But holding together all that we've learned today, the fact that our perspective is limited and, and sometimes we misinterpret things, I, I would encourage us to try that out with intellectual humility. To just be like, hey, when you said this, I felt this. What did you mean? What were you trying to say? And anytime I've done this, I can tell you the relationship gets so much better. Anytime I've taken my experience seriously, but with humility, asking questions, it's led to more truth. A second example, perhaps quite a bit more extreme. There was this famous guy in Hollywood, an actor, comedian, director, and he had been in this like decades-long relationship with a woman. They had had a kid together, they had adopted children together, but after one of these adopted kids turned 22, who, who was a woman, he started dating her, left his common-law wife for this woman who was 30 years his junior. And when he was asked by Time magazine why he thought it was okay to do this, he said, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to these things. You meet someone and you fall in love, and that's that. So let's ask questions about that. What he's assuming, fundamentally, is that if you experience something, particularly a, a strong feeling, that's truth. You should follow it. That's the truth that will lead you, in this case, I think he assumes, to a better, more fulfilled life. But let's like put on our like Bill Nye outfits and think Christianly about it. Let's do a little bit of an experiment. If you go to Scripture, pretty clearly, He's been in a like, decades-long relationship with this person and engaging in sexual activity, and that's for covenant relationships. That's for marriage. So he definitely should have been married to this person already, should have made a commitment. That's strike one. Strike two, Leviticus 18 and 19 are crazy clear about this. Sex does not happen within the family. Right? You don't uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. This younger woman was her daughter. That's a no-no. Strike two. Now, not because those are just prohibitions, but because Scripture is trying to lead us into all life, and these are things that we should do to lead us into all life. 
reason. Let's, let's think about his experience. Well, first and foremost, the thing that drives attraction the most for most of us is, is whether or not somebody's going to bear children. That's just part of our biology. And the phenomena of older men dating younger women is something that happens commonly basically because of this. So if he had been a thinking person, he might think, gee, I wonder if I'm attracted to this younger woman just because of chemistry, like literally chemistry and biology. But more than that, there's a lot of research being done in attraction and neuroplasticity. And there's a guy named Dr. Norman Droidge who studied this and said, you know, most of us actually feel attracted to people that are similar to the way we were bonded to as children. The way we received parental affection will almost definitely always lead to be part of the way that we feel attraction. And unfortunately, our brains can often con confuse familiarity and safety. So in this situation, this young woman is basically his adopted stepdaughter. And had he been a thinking person, he might have asked himself, gee, I wonder if this mutual attraction that she's feeling is because she was abandoned as like a four-year-old. Maybe it's misguided parental affection. So there's kind of like strike three and four. But let's go to tradition. The easy assumption that's behind this, the heart what wants what it wants, this kind of like Elsa-esque way of living in the world, is the belief that if we do what we want, it'll make us happy. And Christian tradition says fundamentally that is just completely untrue, particularly even with regards to attraction and romantic relationships. There's a long and beautiful history of people who never, ever engaged in their desires, including Jesus and Paul, people who I don't want to doubt the joyfulness and life that they experienced. And beyond that, if you walk through Christian tradition, you'll learn that eros, romantic love, desire, is one of these lower loves that points to higher loves. And many have written on the fact that, generally speaking, when we experience desire that way, it's often actually just our bodies longing for connection for intimacy, for being known. So had this guy been thinking, yes, he could have listened to his heart. But he would have known that actually the heart rarely speaks plain English. And somebody really smart once said the heart can be pretty deceitful too. But fundamentally, he could have stopped and been like, well, gee, why am I experiencing this? Maybe I'm stressed out and overwhelmed. Maybe I feel disconnected and I need to reach out to a friend. Maybe there's something within my relationship with this other woman that we haven't addressed and that I've just let hang. Maybe I need to pray on it. Maybe I need to open my heart to the Holy Spirit to reveal to me what's really going on. Our experience can point us towards truth, yes. But we need other things, other checks and balances, other ways of asking questions of our experience to lead us into the truth. When Pilate asked this question, what is the truth? Again, the deep irony, the deep, deep irony was the fact that the one standing before him is the way, the truth, and the life. And many of us are asking questions, too. We're asking what is truth, what's right, what's good in this situation. And fundamentally, the thing that we need to know today is that that same man, that same five-foot-one Jewish guy, is standing before each of us and making the same offer, offering the way, offering truth, offering life. 
He offers us the way. I can imagine that some of this actually ends up being good news for some of us because some of our experiences have been pretty awful. If we were to trust our experience and let that explain the world to us, the world would be a scary, horrible, terrifying place. Whether it's being used and abused and neglected or, or struggling with kind of mental distortions and mental health issues. There's, there are so many things that can make our brains and bodies terrifying places to inhabit. And to know fundamentally that there is a way, that there's a way to exist in the world that is reliable and true, and that can challenge some of the darker and harder parts of our experience, that's good news. And that way does include suffering. As Paul writes in his longing to be with Jesus in Philippians, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining resurrection from the dead. This is the way where even our suffering doesn't disqualify us from receiving resurrection life. Jesus offers the truth, a reliable means of interacting with reality, a truth outside ourselves. He himself is that truth. He's the final and truest representation of what God, therefore life, the universe, and everything is really like. And to know that it is those gentle eyes of Jesus that is fundamentally real, to know that that one who hung on the cross for our good is true, to know that love so amazing and so divine is there regardless of what we experience? That's good news. And finally, when we live that way, and we trust that truth, the promise is that we receive life, indomitable life, forever life. Because that's what this is really about. The truth and life go together in the Christian tradition. And I want us to know today that more than anything else, God wants us to experience those things. To know not just in our minds, but in our bodies. The, the word for repentance in Greek is metanous, and there's one guy that likes to say, it means go beyond the mind you've previously had. Experiencing God can reshape the way we experience reality. Because we don't just serve an idea or a value. We serve the God of, the God of Hannah and Sarah, of Abraham and Moses, of Mary and Martha, of Peter and Paul. The God of each of you. So this week as you go, I encourage you, just open yourself up to experiencing God. Open yourself up, open your experience to him and ask him to reshape the way that you see reality. Ask him to show you the way and the truth and let him lead you to life. May God meet with us today.